discouraged when no answer came. See, I prayed for years and I still saw no change. I was ready to give up, thinking, what can I do? But when I prayed that last time, God's power broke through. And prayer is just as big as God is. Prayer is just as strong as God is strong. Prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up. Just pray. Just pray. Don't ever The God whose potential is yet to be known. There is no limit as to what God can do. So just keep on praying. He's listening to you. And prayer is just as big as God. strong as God is strong. Prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up. Just pray. Just pray. Don't ever give up. Just Praise the Lord. Just pray. Boy, that's what we need, some prayer. Amen? Amen. Well, her husband had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, but she stayed right by his bedside every single day. I mean, day and night, she was just there for her husband. And when he came to, he motioned for her to come near. She sat by him. He said, you know what? You've been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business fell, you were there. When I got shot, even, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. Boy, when I think about it now, I think you bring me bad luck. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. The singles thought that was okay, so I thought I'd share it with you. I run it by them, and they thought that was okay. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is one of the more familiar passages in the Bible. Most have heard of the Good Samaritan. Let's go ahead and read, in, starting in verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25, the book of Luke. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What's written in the law? How readest thou? The answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered, answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed... He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. This good Samaritan that we have read about many times stands as a symbol of compassion and civility toward humanity. I mean, if you want a picture of what the world says is godliness, you simply need to look at the good Samaritan. I mean, his example serves as a model of Christian love and service throughout the ages. No doubt, even we today in the church turn to him and say, look at this example, look at how he willingly puts himself out for the sake of others. And there's little doubt that we'd all do well to embrace his spirit of service. Still as important and even as impactful as this account is in this particular sense, in a very practical sense, mind you, its meaning has even greater spiritual implications. As we consider the passage this morning, we're going to note that its its meaning reaches far beyond this world and into the next. That it paints a picture of God's glorious salvation for all mankind. As we read through the Gospels, it becomes very clear and obvious that there were many that did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and were not pleased with Him. Whether he came and whether he was remaining, they personally did not appreciate Jesus. There were those who not only didn't believe him, but they so disagreed with him that they found it necessary to attack him at every turn. These attacks would obviously increase in number and intensity and would ultimately lead to an old rugged cross where Jesus Christ would hang between heaven and earth. Again, this particular attack that's taking place now is being led by a certain lawyer, the Bible says. His purpose, the Bible tells us, is to tempt him. If you will, it's to put him to test. 
You say, it's not much of an attack, but it is an attack. Because again, he's tempting the Lord. He's trying somehow to weasel his way into a place where he can cast stones at the master, if you will. That he could walk away and say, well, you know what he told me, don't you? Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question in verse 25. But you have to remember, this was a lawyer. And we talk about a lawyer, that's someone that knows the law. And in this case, it's the law of Moses. They were expert in the law. This particular man obviously spent years studying the law of Moses until finally he received his coveted degree. Now, being an expert in the Bible or the biblical law, as intelligent as he is, as versed in the scriptures as he was, he was totally and completely ignorant of the identity of who Jesus was. He was so convinced that Jesus was an imposter, that he was some fanatic, that he spent much of his time trying to prove the Lord wrong. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, on the other hand, he throws the question back at this particular man. He says, what's written in the law? How readest thou? Well, that's a pretty good response, really. In essence, Jesus was saying, if something has to be done to acquire eternal life, then surely the law is the place to go. And guess what? You being so versed and so schooled in the law, you have to have the answer, right? The lawyer responds by quoting two key passages. He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. We see that in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. And he points to these two passages and effectively says, This is what we have to do. And upon hearing his answer, Jesus responds by throwing the man's dew right back to him. I'm talking about his hair. This do and thou shalt live, he says. And Jesus is basically saying, you're right. That's what the law says. Now go and do it. This lawyer again quoted the law. And if only he could fulfill the law, he would indeed gain eternal life. However, nobody but Jesus ever loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nobody but Jesus ever loved his neighbor as himself. Nobody but Jesus ever really did their best every time they put forth effort. No one can keep the law. No one can measure up to its standard. The law was given with a very specific purpose in mind. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20. What was the purpose of the law? You say it was so that we could understand what God's expectations were, so that we could know how we're to live, so that we can somehow earn or gain eternal life. No, that's not at all why the law was given. Look what the Bible tells us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. By the way, can I just say this, so that we are all understanding what it's saying. 
we are all under law before we get under grace. I think it's important to understand we are all under the law until we are finally placed in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. It says in the passage in Romans 3, Paul writing to the church at Rome, he says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Boy, that's important, isn't it? Do you know what the purpose of the law is then, according to verse 19? It's so that everybody that looks at the law can just kind of gaze upon it for just a while and realize and recognize that the standard is so high that we could never, ever measure up or meet that standard. Oh my, if I have to live like that, if I have to be perfect in my outlook and my actions, I'm doomed, I'm done. Verse 20 goes on to say, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Again, when we begin to say, Wow, I can't steal, or I can't kill, or I can't... And it's not just what we do, it's what we think, remember? Jesus clarified that as well. Oh my, this law becomes so big, so tall, so wide, we can't go over it, we can't go around it, we can't go under it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. There's no way you could ever do enough of the law to be justified, just as if you never sinned. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He says, you know what that law's purpose was, really, in the end? So that you understood you're a sinner. So that you can't somehow try to escape The condemnation in your mind. You have to admit that God is right, that we are all sinners. That law gives us the knowledge of sin. I know what sin is now. I understand based on God's rules and his regulations, his standard, his commandments, his statutes. I know what he expects and I know what's right and wrong now. And the truth is, we can't can't do it. That's the purpose of the law. You somebody knock on a door and say, listen, I wonder if you died today, are you 100% sure where you'd spend eternity? Yes, I think so. Well, really, how do you know that? Well, I try to do my best to keep the Ten Commandments. Was your best good enough? Well, I'm doing my best. Is it good enough? Are you keeping it? And you know what the truth is? None of us can keep that. And every time we say that, every time we admit that, every time we see the law and realize that we can't measure up to it, we are admitting that we cannot do it ourselves and we need someone else to do it on our behalf. The law cannot save. That's as simple as it is. And by this time, I got to believe that the lawyer was somewhat regretting his encounter. But instead of tucking his tail and running for the hills, he tries to save face and he digs in even a little bit deeper and he says, and who is my neighbor? Again, notice he says, but he willingly, he willing to justify himself. That's why he's going to ask this next question. He tries still to justify himself. And he says, and who is my neighbor? Answer me that, Jesus. Because we all have enemies, don't we? Am I supposed to treat them kindly too? He thought he had him again. And then Jesus breaks out in this parable. 
What he's trying to get this man to understand in the end is this. He's trying to get him to answer a very, a, a more pointed question. Here's the question Jesus really wants him to answer. Instead of me answering, who is your neighbor? I want you to answer, am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? He's making it personal now. And isn't that how it always is when it comes to Christ? So the story that Jesus told this lawyer, and by the way, this lawyer, who's trying to trip him up, mind you, is somebody that Jesus loves with all his heart. And he's going to share a story that's in three particular parts. It's first a story of ruin. Then it's a story of rejection. And finally, it's a story of redemption. And so we're going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to look at those three aspects of the story of the Good Samaritan today. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. We ask that you would just speak to our hearts today. May you work in our lives. We desperately need you. Thank you, Father, for these that have gathered today. May our hearts be encouraged as we glean from your word. May you drive home these truths deep in our hearts. And Lord, if there be any that are yet without Jesus Christ, may they recognize their need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus, today. May they call upon him and be miraculously and wonderfully saved before they leave. For we as believers, may we just be so grateful for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. And may it be reflected in our attitude and our actions moving forward. Now fill me with your spirit. May I be your mouthpiece even now. Holy Spirit of God, take control. And may you speak to my heart and may you, Father, open up every listening ear that they may hear with spiritual ears. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, it's a story of ruin. Again, in verse 30 of our passage, the Bible says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Again, I want you to note that this man that he's speaking about went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's interesting because if you would look on a map a map of Israel, and you would pinpoint Jerusalem, you're going to find that Jerusalem isn't south of Jericho. It's actually northeast of Jericho. He went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He should be going down to Jericho, or going up to Jerusalem, excuse me. But the Bible says here in the passage, it says he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is northeast of Jerusalem. So again, well, I've got you backed up. I'm getting mixed up for how you're looking. It's over here. Jerusalem, Jericho. He's not going down. He'd have to go up. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Why does the Bible say that he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is actually north of him, northeast of him? Well, I believe that any time, any time you leave, now this is important, any time you leave the city of God to go to a cursed city, you're going down. You say, what do you mean? Well, in Joshua 6, 26, and Joshua adjured them at that time saying, cursed be the man therefore uh, before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. Man, this man was cursed just because he built it. This is not a city that was supposed to be rebuilt. 
Here they go, they're going back up to, in this case, he's going back up to Jericho, but he says he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm going to tell you something. When you leave the presence of God, you leave the house of God, you're always going down. I don't care if it seems like an upward move. You're always going down. What we really have here in this passage is a picture of a fallen man. That, don't worry about that. That's just some of the rats. Get a, they kind of get in. I'll explain it later. <laughs> Not really. Okay, so anyway, it's probably one of the runaway children. But anyhow, <clears throat> what we have here is a picture of a fallen man. Notice it says that he fell among thieves. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you know that Satan is described as a thief? The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. So in this particular case, this man, he fell among thieves. But not only that, he was stripped of his raiment. You know, in the, in, in the Garden of Eden, we know that there came a point whenever Adam and Eve sinned that they recognized their nakedness and they were what? Ashamed. He was stripped of his raiment. He was made ashamed. And be, let me tell you, before the sacrifice that the Lord provided for Adam and Eve, there was no hope of them. They were lost indeed. He was wounded. This man was in pain and he was suffering. Boy, that's a picture of the lost world. He was left half dead. Do you know, it's funny, there are two deaths in the Bible. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. We read about it in Revelation 20, 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You may be alive today, but you are already dead spiritually without Christ. You're half alive. That's interesting, isn't it? In this case, he was half dead. And you know what? That's really the case with every unbeliever. They're already half dead. Oh, they're walking around, they're living, but they're already dead. Spiritually. They're half dead already. All they have to do is close their eyes in death and they'll be cast into hell. Eternal death. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're already condemned. Man, this man is a picture, a picture of a fallen man, a picture of an unsaved man, a picture of somebody without Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, turn there, would you please? Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Look at verse 11 and 12. There is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all do fate as a leap and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Human beings are sinners and as sinners, the very best that we have to offer God, according to Isaiah 64, 6, is a filthy shop rag. Cleaning up grease off, the, off of greasy machinery. 
just wiping it all down, cleaning it all up, and we look at it and it's soiled with black oil and everything else, and we go, okay, God, here it is. I want you to have it. And he says, that's the best you have to offer me? We say, yes, that's us in our flesh. All we have is filthy rags. And someone says that I'll just live good enough and clean enough that God will somehow allow me in. My good will outweigh my bad. Can I tell you, that's impossible. Your best is filthy rags in God's sight. And so is mine. Listen, this is a picture of a fallen man, an unsaved man. But number two, not only is it a story of ruin, it's a story of rejection. Hey, this man had no one to help him. And he certainly couldn't help himself, that's for sure. We may have expected, he may have expected help from those first two fellows that showed up on the scene, but they had nothing to do with them. They could have cared less how bad a shape he was in. I think it's interesting as you look at the passage, and I, I, I didn't really notice it that awfully much till just now when we were reading through, but it says, and by chance there came down a certain priest. By chance. He wasn't really looking for anybody, nor did he ever look for anybody. And it says, and it goes on to say, and likewise a Levite. But when it comes down to the next man, it doesn't say those things. And, and it goes, and on the morrow when he, excuse me, it says, it says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. It's interesting. They just happened to show up there that day. They just happened to be around. Uh, it was by chance. They weren't looking for anyone, but the Samaritan obviously was. He's always had his eye open for people that were in need. This is a story of rejection. It says, but along came a priest. Undoubtedly, the priest could and would help him, right? I mean, he's a priest. He's a man of God. However, the priest, quote, saw him and passed by on the other side. He didn't even just pass by. He didn't want to get close enough to anybody could like say, hey, you going to do anything for that guy? He sees him in, a, in the distance and he goes, hmm, that don't look good to me. I'm going to cross the street and get on the other side. And then I'll be kind of like, Oh, I have to be, oh, those are beautiful flowers there. Oh, man, isn't that a lovely, oh, you're doing such a great job with your lawn. Ooh, got past that. None of us would ever do that, right? So much for the priest. This particular priest, he stood for the rituals of the law. And there were a lot of rituals of the law, Right? He's well-versed in the law, well-versed in sacrifices. He knew the feast days and the fast days and all about circumcision and the Sabbath. A lot of help the priest was, though. You know that the rites of religion, however rooted in truth and tradition, can never help a lost soul? Do you realize that? Think about it. What good would it have been for Jesus there on the cross to turn to the dying thief and say, hey, by the way, you need to be baptized? I wouldn't have done a whole lot of good, would it? Oh, then came a Levite, though. Here's a man who, just like the priest, was consecrated to God, set apart unto the Lord. It's likely that the lawyer who challenged Jesus was probably a Levite. The Levite's great duty was to preserve the law. To, I mean, it was to keep it from being diluted. It was to protect it from attack. 
It was to make sure that all the requirements of the law, their job was to ensure they were kept, that its precepts were properly administered, that it was passed on intact to the next generation. They were the Levites. In short, the Levite was concerned with the rules of religion. What good would it have done for this Levite to go to this man that was broken and burdened down with pain and say, by the way, recite the Ten Commandments or just the two great commandments would have done no good. In any case, the Levite was no help, of course. He, he also crossed the street, if you would. He didn't want to get too close. And then he just left him in his misery And like the priest, well, they went on with their life. See, both of those men that came by, the priest and the Levite, they represented organized religion. Between them, the priest and the Levite demonstrated, get this, the failure of godly duties and, excuse me, godly rules. And they showed the failure of organized religion to save. You will never be saved by keeping a set of rules or by somehow becoming a member of a church, or following through with some kind of regulations or standards, those in and of themselves that it'll never save. I'm not saying there's not a need. Listen, every workplace needs some rules. I get it. Every, every home needs some rules. Every church needs some rules to function and operate. And God gives us some of those. But hold on. Those don't get you saved. See, this is the state of fallen man. Ephesians 2.12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's about how that man felt along the road. There he lay, needing help. He himself could do nothing to help himself. He had to have somebody else come along. And yet, the very two that should have done something, probably first and foremost, well, neglected him and went to the other side. It's interesting when you consider the perspective of this lawyer, and, and I think it's, it's funny. The Lord turns to the lawyer now, the one he's having this conversation with, and he turns to the lawyer's, he, he turns the lawyer's attention to the true save, Savior now. The one who the lawyer, get this, chooses to despise. And when I say Savior, I'm talking about in the passage. The Samaritan was the true Savior in the passage. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't even a lawyer, probably like he was. It was a Samaritan. You've got to understand something. The Samaritans were a people born out of the Assyrian captivity. The Jews were taken into captivity into Assyria. When that happened, these Jews, instead of remaining isolated, separated from, they intermarried. They became part of the culture. A a Samaritan was, was, if you will, half Jewish and half Gentile. And I mean to tell you, the true 
Jew, the Jew who had yet to do that, who had not entered into that, the Jews that were around in Jesus' day that were not Samaritans said, listen, we want nothing to do with the Samaritans. They're compromisers. They themselves are ungodly. They're sinners. And God loves us, his people. He doesn't love them. And here's Jesus talking about a man on the side of the road. And a priest and a Levite go by and they cross the street and they oh, oh, sing a song. Let's sing something. What can I sing? Oh, Jesus is the rock of my salvation. They certainly weren't singing that. And he says, but a Samaritan did what they should have done. Wow, that didn't go across well. See, it turns now into a story of redemption because in Luke 10, 33, it says, but a certain Samaritan, Jesus says, as he journeyed, came where he was. Jesus points out now to this Levite, a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The Samaritan, it says, came where he was just like Jesus did for us. Out of the ivory palaces. In, oh, I messed that up. It goes out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Only his great eternal love made my Savior go. He left ivory palaces and came to this earth so that he could come to where you and I were. That song says, He came to me, right? And he did. He left the splendor of heaven. He came into a world of sin and woe right where you and I were. Despite our hopelessness, despite our helplessness, despite our sin, Jesus sought us out. He had compassion on us. The Samaritan then goes on to dress the poor man's wounds. He pours oil and wine into them, oil to soothe and wine to cleanse, and just like Jesus did for you and I. Then the Samaritan brought the poor man to an inn. And there he cared for him until the morning. And he said, by the way, I'm going to leave, but you continue to care for him. And whatever the difference is, I'll pay you when I return. Just like Jesus did for us by placing us in the church where we could be cared for, strengthened, and uplifted. But he wasn't through with the lawyer yet. He says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor? was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. Which one do you think was neighbor? The Lord says, he that showed mercy on him. You say, that's a good answer. It's true, isn't it? But think about this. The Samaritan was the only one who brought hope and help to this wounded and weary traveler. You know what I think? I think if it had been the priest, he'd have said, the priest... If it had been the lawyer, I think he, uh, the lawyer, I think he'd have said, the lawyer did. That Levite. But remember who actually did. It was the Samaritan. He wasn't going to give no Samaritan any credit for nothing. He acknowledged the mercy, but he would not give credit to the Samaritan who he hated. See, the Samaritan represents Jesus Christ and the only one who can truly rescue fallen man. 
I mean, who else would go out of his way to rescue a sinner? Who else would ensure the safety of, a fall, of one fallen? Who else would provide for the need of the unloved and unwanted? In the end, the Lord left the lawyer right where he was when he first challenged him. That man wanted no part, nothing to do with a salvation that came by way of someone he despised. He wasn't going to listen to Jesus. He had wanted nothing to do with him, just like he wants nothing to do with the Samaritan who represented Jesus. The lost man says, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says to him, go and do thou likewise. Okay, go now. Just go and do the right thing then. Go and do. Go ahead. Now, I want you to notice something very important as we close this out. Look what it says. Look at verse chapter 10 again, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to show you a word that's extremely important in the passage. Notice what it says. It says this lawyer, it's interesting, as clever as he is, there's a flaw in his original question. Look what this says here, first of all. Chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. Look at verse 28. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Notice verse 37. And he said, He that showeth mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Do you know what the law says? Do. That's what the law says. I mean, don't you hear the constant beating of the drum? Do, 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 do. Do you hear it? That's what the law says. The gospel says, done. Again, it's interesting as we note this flaw, as clever as the lawyer is, the original question is flawed. Notice what he says. What shall I do... Watch it now. To inherit eternal life. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Normally, an inheritance is something we what? Receive. You don't do anything. You receive an inheritance. But this man says, what? Hey, Jesus. He's trying to trip him up. Jesus. Um, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? If eternal life is an inheritance, then you can do nothing. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, but not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 4, 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as the traveler could do absolutely nothing for himself, in his pitiful condition, he was helpless, hopeless in his own effort and in his own ability. The truth is, neither you and I can do anything about the desperate and sinful state that we find ourselves in today. 
Not one thing can you do about it. Not one thing can I do. We're on the side of the road, if you will, right now. We've been beaten and battered, and we can't get up, and we can't do anything to save ourselves or to find, way, uh, find a way to shelter or safety. That's not going to happen. There we lay there. Who's going to rescue us? A priest? A Levite? The law? No. Only the grace of God can do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Because, see, the law says you've got to do Man, you got to be a good mama and a good daddy and a good brother and a good sister. you got to be a good employee. you got to be good at this and good at that and good at this. You can't say nothing wrong. You can't do anything wrong. you got to be perfect. you got to live up to God's perfect holy standard. Do, 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 do. But I'm telling you now, the grace of God says, no, it's already been done. In Jesus Christ, who hung on Calvary and paid sin's debt in full. What are you depending on to get you safely into heaven? It's an inheritance. It's something, as the Bible calls it later on, and it, he says it's a gift even. It's the gift of God. Do versus done. That's the difference. On one side, you can choose to do your very best to earn your way to find a way to heaven. Or you can simply trust in what's already been done in Jesus Christ on Calvary. Can I tell you, as hard as you try, as much as you work at it, you'll never do enough. You have to rest in Jesus Christ. That's really the key. Do you know what happens to us? You know why sometimes we even begin to doubt our salvation when we start to live a little bit out of sorts? First of all, there's obviously conviction. The Holy Spirit's letting us know that's not how a Christian ought to live because you should be identifying with your, your master. You are his child. You should live like it and act like it. We, read, we talked about that in Sunday school. But I also believe that there's an element here where when we... And I'm losing track of my thoughts here all of a sudden. I don't usually do that, but I did. I, when I looked at this front row, it really distracted me. <laughs> Should have stayed on that side. <laughs> That's with you guys. It doesn't matter what I was thinking about, because obviously the Lord don't want me to say it. But I can tell you this. We don't need to question or doubt our salvation, do we? If we're resting in him. And that's what we have to do, and that's where it really is. I mean, honestly, you and I have to rest in Christ. It means that we can't try to do anything at any point. We simply lean on him. The moment you and I start to think we can do something to earn his favor is the moment we start to question our salvation. But our salvation is not found in what we've ever done ourselves. It's what he's done for us. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. And I want you to remember that. The Good Samaritan. Every time we read it, we ought to think about Jesus and how he showed us compassion and how he raised us up and how he placed us in God's family and, and, and how he put us in the house of God to, to grow and to be strengthened and to be encouraged. We ought to thank the Lord for all of that. Man, I don't know about you, but that old lawyer that day, 
He got a little more than he bargained for. And when he left, he had to say, you know what? I'm not such a great neighbor after all. I'm really not that good of a neighbor, am I? I wonder, are you a good neighbor? You're a child of God today, and there are people all around you that are on the roadside without Jesus Christ, that are helpless and hopelessly bound for, for hell. Will you be that good Samaritan? Will you take Christ to them? We've been blessed in our church lately. We've watched God bless through our outreach, our soul winning, and even just folks going out, just, just being themselves, being Christians in the community. We're seeing people come to Christ. It's a blessing. Oh, yeah, we want to see more in the baptistry waters. Yeah, sometimes we baptize in the evenings and things. Maybe some of you don't get to see that. But I'm telling you, we want God to do more. We want to see people take the step into God's house and grow in Christ as well. No doubt, but God is blessing. Do versus done. Have you let Christ save you? It's already done. Except what? He did for you on Calvary as payment for your sin. Stop trying to do and depend on what he's already done. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time we've had together. Lord, this simple little thought from the scriptures, Lord. Lord, there's no doubt that as sinners, we, we are helpless today. That law is never going to save us. We can't live up to it. No matter how good we try to be, we're never going to be good enough. But Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, and he took our place on Calvary, and he literally paid the penalty of sin, which is death. We're, we're part, we're just part alive, and we're part dead already when we're born into this world. We, we're living in the flesh, but we're dead spiritually. We need the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. We need Christ to forgive and save us and make us a new creature. Father, I pray, Lord, that if there be any that have yet to receive and accept Christ, that have never taken the time to just completely and totally rest in Jesus, to depend on what he's already done alone to save them, that they would settle that today, that they would find salvation in Jesus Christ today. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just bless the believer now and may we remember who we are in Jesus and live our lives accordingly and be the neighbor that we ought to be to those that are without Jesus and are helplessly wounded without Christ. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.